You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Wealth is not an advantage. What advantage was it for Ebenezer Scrooge? What advantage was it? I know that's just a story. What advantage was it for the rich man? What advantage is it for these guys? It's not. It's a spiritual trap. And that's why most rich people never bow before Christ and and come and beg for mercy and say, I'm a sinner and I'm a wretched human being and I deserve the wrath of God and I need someone to save me and I'm, I'm really a poor man at heart. They don't say that. Our culture definitely equates wealth with success. Power and fame is desirable, but Pastor Tom shows us today that we most likely would be better off without any of the above. Jesus warned us that it was difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and we'll see some of the reasons why when we unpack this message in James's letter. It might just change our goals and even our prayers when we realize how huge the trap is that these things create. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5 as he continues his message the impending judgment of the ungodly rich and powerful. All that stuff that they had is now going to be like the evidence presented in court. But you didn't give it to the poor. You didn't share with those in need. You didn't help out the missionary. You just added to your own estate over and over. And that's going to be the testimony against them. You were a hoarder. So I'm looking up hoarding this past week, you know. What is it with these hoarders? I'm trying to figure it out. You know, the Mayo Clinic calls it a, you know, a mental illness, a disorder. I disagree. I think it's an approach towards life which doesn't understand why we're given possessions. You know, the hoarder basically finds something. They like what it looks like. If it's useful, maybe it's a tool. Maybe they're hoarding tools. Maybe they're hoarding cats. I don't know. People hoard all kinds of things, right? And they hoard stuff, and it starts to pile up around the house, right? If you got a home and stuff is piling up, listen, you know? And then they, they, they have too much stuff, so they want to be organized, and they put it into a storage. Having a storage unit is okay, but what are you storing? How are you going to use it? And it starts to get cluttered, and it starts to pile up around the house, and they're hoarding things. All of that hoarding, all of that collecting is for what? Well, maybe one day I might be able to use it. That's the problem. Find someone who needs it now and give it to them. You see the difference? That's why he says, right here, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. What does that mean? That means that's a big boo-boo. That's a big problem. You didn't realize that it's in your last days. Now, people hear last days, they start thinking about, oh, yeah, my last days. That's retirement. That's retirement. That's why I stored up my wealth. Store my wealth for retirement. So you live your whole life to store it all up, then you go to retirement and just live at ease. Kind of the same wrong mentality, isn't it? No, no. Last days doesn't mean my last days on earth, as in, i.e., old age. Last days means the last days in which the Lord Jesus Christ, with that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, as the vision in Revelation says, that Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming back, and he's coming back with judgment. And it's in these last days that you piled up that treasure. That was not smart. Because all you did is by collecting all of that stuff, you let that testify against you and against any righteousness that you might have. It shows that you're an unbeliever. It shows that you were, your heart was invested in the things of the world. Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, this sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Again, we see those parallels. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, then he says, store up your treasures where? In heaven, not on earth, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? 
there your heart will be also. See, how do we know where a person's heart is? Well, we got a little bit of an indication. There was this thing that was passed down the aisle. Do you remember what it was? It was kind of circular, kind of gold-looking, had a little red velvet at the bottom. And, and as it gets passed, it goes back and forth between the aisles. And, and no, it, it doesn't really yell at you. It doesn't say, give to the Lord. But it just comes. Some people, they have their regular giving. Once a month, they give 10%, they give 8%, they give whatever they believe that they, they, they want to give to the Lord out of, the, out of their heart, and they're saying thank you to God, continue the work of the church and do that. But people that just, you know, once they just put a little bit in, just to show they're putting a little bit in, but there's no, there's no real practice of giving, there's no real commitment to giving. It's 1%, it's 2%, it's nothing. That reveals the heart, Right? And it's a testimony against those that don't give because their heart is wrapped up where their treasure is. The mouth says one thing, but in the heart it's like, no, 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 no. I want the nicer home. I want the nicer vacation. I want, I really want the nicer car. And it might be one thing for you and one thing for you and one thing for me, but there it is, and it has a grip on the life. This passage is talking about unbelievers, but saying, you look at the way the rich live and the way they make decisions and how they mistreat the righteous. Why is it that way? Because of their love of money. And we can still glean some understanding from that and application for our own lives. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. That was not smart at all. It's all going to work as a witness against you. Even consume your own flesh like those riches have become a poison or a fire inside of them and it's going to lead to their eternal destruction. Terrible, terrible thing. Now, back out of this a little bit. Make sure you don't misunderstand me. Is it wrong to buy gold as an investment? No. Is it wrong to buy silver as an investment? No. Is it wrong to own a home and take care of it, pair the air conditioning when it breaks? Plumbing, put some nice pictures up on the wall, new coat of paint. No, it's not wrong. But we can get carried away with that, can we not? We can get like, well, I need to have and I need to have and I need to have and the, and the extra money just keeps going for that and just one year after another year. And what happens? What happens when the appeals for the poor or for the work of the gospel come? There's just not anything there. There's just not much there. Sorry, but I could, but you know, I had to fix this and I had to fix that and I had to buy that. But you didn't have to, actually. You chose to. And so Pastor Tony comes up here, and he says, you know, we need money for med mission, and the money's in your pocket. And you all laugh at that because he's right. The money that they need for the med mission, that's already in your pocket. But the problem is it might not be in your pocket. You might have already spent it. And that's a problem. And it's something we need to evaluate in our own lives. Now, that's just by way of application for us. Don't be a hoarder. Don't be someone who has more and more in their home. You know, I was, I was thinking that we really do a pretty good job here at Hope. I, I was just thinking about this. With Hope Book, we have the, uh, the sharing of belongings. You know, does anyone have need of this? And five people want it right away, right? Does anyone have need of this? And they're shared back and forth. And it's a wonderful thing. You were letting go of belongings, belongings that we don't need. That's a nice thing. But you know what would be even better? Can I just say this? You know what would be even better? Is if someone in our congregation would take up the leadership or at least the organization of how we can take our extra belongings and pass them on to the poor. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Maybe someone, maybe the Lord will put that on someone's heart and say, you know what, I think I could do that. I think maybe we could team up with some other churches or some other organization and we could do some collecting. We do a little bit of that at Christmas and all, but how many pairs of shoes do you have right now? Go home and count them. 
Next week, we're going to come in and we're going to raise a card each over our heads. This is how many pairs of shoes I have. Some of you are going to be like, I got 37. I'm not going to church next week, man. I got a cold. <laughs> All right, if it's not shoes and then you, you're like, well, I only have six pairs of shoes. That's not, well, some people don't have any pairs of shoes in the world. What are we doing? You know what I mean? How many suits and ties do I have? How many, how many blue jeans? You know what I mean? So let's just give this some thought. Let's give this some prayer. Let's think about how can we mobilize as a congregation to make sure that we who are more affluent are getting things out in, in some way that really works and, and can help the poor. Let's kind of focus on that. All right. So they're hoarders. Let's move on. We're running out of time. The second witness against them is they withheld pay. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Case number two or, or witness number two. Withholding pay from workers. Now we're really sounding like the socialist here a little bit, right? It's like this sounds like an anti-capitalist rant or something like it. It's not. The Bible's not against capitalism. It's actually against socialism, but it's against the abuse of capitalism, and it should be. The greed that's gone amok. So what's happened here? The, the landowners in those days, they buy up more and more properties. They put the little guy out of business. He has to sell the farm. He can't keep up with it. And then he has no job, so he comes to work for the guy with the bigger farm. The guy says, yeah, I'll give you a job. You can work with the other workers, and they start working. And they work, and they work all day in the noonday sun, and it's hot, and it's back-breaking work. Their feet hurt. Their hands have calluses on it, right? Then they come into the end of the day. You remember another parable of the Lord Jesus, and, and the point of the parable wasn't exactly the pay at the end of the day, but it showed that the workers were paid at the end of the day, and they expected to be paid at the end of the day. And so they come, and they want to be paid, but here the rich guy says, you know, I don't have to pay today. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it to you. There's actually law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that forbade the Israelites from withholding the wages for a worker overnight. It had to be given to them on that day. Why? It's an agrarian society. They're poor. They go from hand to mouth, right? That's how it is. If you don't bring home some money, you don't have dinner. You come home, there's the wife and kids. You work 12 hours in the sun and you're, what do you have? It's like, well, they didn't pay us today. So I guess we're not eating tonight. You have to look in the eyes of your wife and your kids. And this, is, this was a, a terrible evil. Do you see that? It was very unjust. And that's what these rich guys could do because I'll pay you the next day. And if you were the kind of worker that complained about that, you'd just be blacklisted for the next day, right? No job for you tomorrow. That guy's a troublemaker. And then if you expected your compadres to help out, they'd say, don't talk to me. I don't want you anywhere near me. Yeah, you shouldn't open up your mouth. You know, just be quiet and just, you know, maybe we'll have money tomorrow. Because they had, they had no recourse. They had no way to fight the rich. Oh, well, why don't they take them to court? They take them to court, fine, go to court. And then the rich get the better lawyers. The rich pay off the judges. That's it. They're squeezed out. They're gone. James knows that. James has righteous indignation, and he's fighting for the poor believers in that sense. But really what he's doing is saying, you poor believers, since, since the ungodly rich are probably not even reading this, He's really writing this in the benefit for those that are the poor, saying, don't envy them and don't let your wrath be against them. God will take care of them. Their, their miseries are coming upon them. By the way, I love this. He says, the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Pay of the laborers cries out against you. Remember when the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem 
And, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, Rabbi, rebuke your uh, disciples from singing this Hosanna stuff. And Jesus' response, do you remember that? If I'm quiet and they're quiet, they don't sing, the rocks will cry out. Here the coins are crying out. The coins are saying, we belong to the worker. And that cry, so to say, is going all the way up to the Lord of hosts. Now that title, Lord of hosts, is a high and powerful title for God. Even in the Old Testament, it means the Lord of the armies. There's the Lord of the armies, and that cry of injustice has now, literally it says, entered into the ear of the Lord of hosts. And what does he have? He has an army, and what would they do? If a king was indignant against the sin of a city, he would ride in with his army, and he would slaughter those who had done that which was wrong. That's the picture here. You think you're safe? God is about to ride in with his armies, and he's about to defend the poor, and you're going to suffer. And so their withholding of the pay goes against them. The third witness against them is in verse 5. Look at that. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, some people view this as they had um, kind of been eating a lot and uh, fattening their own hearts in this sense, fattening their bodies. But really what it's just saying is the way you lived was like an ox or a sheep that's been fattened, getting it ready for the day of slaughter. And who's going to do the slaughtering? God is. It's divine judgment. Those two words, luxuriously, you know, just with ease is what it means. In every way you lived, having all the comforts that you want. This makes their sin even worse. Not only do they send the poor man home without any money just to get the meal on the table, but in front of them, they go back to their house, they lay on their couch, they put on their good garments, and they live luxuriously in front of the poor. This just compounds the witness against them. Really, it's getting worse as you go through the passage. You live luxuriously. Where? On earth, because you're not going to live that way in heaven. And you didn't realize because it's the last days, all you were doing when you were eating and having your festivities and your parties and going from one wine testing to another and one party to another, you didn't realize this, but you were just fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. What a picture. What fools. Many rich have no idea the times in which they live. They laugh. They have a great time. They're out there right now having a great time. I mean, what a waste of time to go to church. Why would you go to church? You guys just sitting there, what are you doing? You know, you could be cruising. You could be, you could be whatever, right? What are you doing wasting your time in here? And then, and, then, and then they're asking for money? Are you kidding me? You give your money to them? And then they ask for your time? They live for their weekends. And they're trying to make their weekends three-day weekends, right? They live to play. They don't, they don't see any judgment of God. They don't see anything to be afraid of, right? There's nothing to be afraid of as far as they're concerned. Nothing. They're having a great time. They're living the way secretly some of you want to live. And they're like, look at me. They kind of know it. It's kind of there, the head, the way the head is. They just know. You want to be like me, but you can't. And I surround myself with people like me, and we're having a great time. They have no idea that they are in a terrible place before God. Wealth is not an advantage. Let me say that again because I doubt that you believe that. Wealth is not an advantage. What advantage was it for Ebenezer Scrooge? What advantage was it? I know that's just a story. What advantage was it for the rich man? What advantage is it for these guys? It's not. It's a spiritual trap. And that's why most rich people never 
bow before Christ and, and come and beg for mercy and say, I'm a sinner and I'm a wretched human being and I deserve the wrath of God and I need someone to save me and I'm, I'm really a poor man at heart. They don't say that. They're so smug and their riches have deceived them. Remember in 1 Timothy, the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of riches. They're living in the midst of it and they think everything is good with them. In fact, other people think everything is good with them. God must be on the side of the rich. Look, God gave the rich all this stuff. They're in the worst condition. How hard it is for a rich man to enter what? The kingdom of God. Who said that? The Lord Jesus Christ. There's some rich that get saved, but not many. It's a disadvantage, in a sense, to your discipleship to be rich. People visit other parts of the world, and they see the believers there, and they have 10 times less than us. It seems like their souls and their commitment to Christ are soaring that much more. I tell you, it's the hardest thing with pastors in America to convince their people, you need to give more, you need to give more money, you need to give more time, you need to give more energy and effort. That just falls on deaf ears. Man, I got enough to do. Leave me alone. You got enough to do because you're all invested in the things of this world and it's filling all your time and your energy. You wake up in the morning thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it, and it's wearing you out. You have no time and money left over for the things of God. It's a trap. It hurts your discipleship. And you're really freeing when you learn to give. How do you know your heart can be free? There's only one way, and it's going to be painful for some of you. And you're going to say, oh, Pastor, you're just manipulating us with the Bible. No, this is the way it's going to be. Either you're going to learn to give or you're not going to learn to give. You're going to go reach into your pocket. You're going to reach into your savings. You're going to, you're going to look at something that you wanted to get this year, this summer, and you're going to say, no, I'm taking that and I'm giving that. Someone in need, some ministry that needs it, some person that needs it. The rich are so deceived, they've lived a life, a hedonistic lifestyle in the end times, and that's the witness against them. And lastly, verse 6, and this is where it gets the worst. This is the climax of the passage. This shows you why this passage is not talking about believers. The others do as well, but this one really shows it. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person, the righteous man. And then it adds this little phrase, he does not resist you. Now, some people think that this is literal murder, that the rich literally murdered the righteous man. That's, of course, possible, but given the overall scenario of the situation, what happens to the poor man who cannot pay for his family, eventually his being deprived of everything that he needs for life results in poor health and death. And he squeezed him out until he died while he continued to eat all the things that he wanted to eat. And then uh, the righteous man, by the way, there is not talking about Christ, but talking about the kind of righteous man that lives in front of them. Rather than being committed to the righteous man, the believer, the one that does what is right, the one who stands on his principles, lived his life by the Bible, the righteous kind of man, rather than helping them, they turned out to be against them. In other words, their wealth, their influence, their power was used basically to make it harder on the righteous man. And that's what CEOs and businesses and corporations are starting to do more and more, making it harder and harder for the righteous man. That's what's happening right now at an amazing, amazingly fast speed here in our society. Well, use whatever bathroom you want. That's the latest thing. It'll be something else soon. And they act like this is reasonable. It's just absurd. It's just absurd. It's crazy. Sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's big government. Sometimes big government can start to put, put onerous 
rules on the righteous that I can't keep that rule. That will compromise my faith. And they don't care. This president doesn't care. The Supreme Court didn't care. Our local governments don't care. Putting non-Christian, onerous burdens on righteous people, that is indicating a mind of people that are not in line with God's priorities. The rich did it then. The rich do it now. The powerful did it then. The powerful do it now. Sometimes that power comes from a position in government. Sometimes that power comes from money that they have to control the courts. Some of you know you've had to face a legal situation where you have to take something to court and you don't know if you want to do it. It's just going to cost too much. No problem for the rich man. He'll just appeal and appeal and run you into the ground, right? It's unfair. Yes, it is. It's completely unfair. It's unjust. Yes, it is. It's completely unjust. It makes you angry, doesn't it? It's our situation. It's our station in life. That's what, we're, that's what we have to face. Those are the authorities we're under. Those are the influential people we're under. That's what's happening in America right now. Godlessness is being promoted by our government. Godlessness is being promoted by the business world. Both big business, big government. They're not either one on our side. We're left as orphans. Oh, except we have our Heavenly Father who will never forget us. And we need to remember whatever we suffer now, whatever hardship that we have now, even when we're persecuted, even if it results in the death of believers, God forbid, but that may happen, that um, God sees it and uh, God will bring swift justice upon those who deserve it. That little last part there is uh, such an interesting statement. He, the righteous man, does not resist you. What? See, we might think that the right response to oppression and persecution and all of this stuff is to band together and flex our muscle as a church in politics. But one of the reasons why we don't espouse a political solution to things is because Scripture doesn't. There, there is a sense in which the Lord Jesus said, do not resist evil. That means when people are doing evil things to you, you win them over by walking the extra mile with them, by turning the cheek to them, you see? What did the Lord Jesus Christ do when he was arrested? He said, this is the hour of darkness and it has been given over to you to do whatever you want. And he did not resist those who came and, and bound him and scourged him and put a crown of thorns on him and he willingly laid down his life. We believers need to be believing. We need to believe in the next life. We need to believe that our hope is there. We're not going to resist. We're not, some feel it's like, well, they didn't have any way of fighting. They, they didn't have any means to fight in the courts. That might be it. But it seems to say more than that. The righteous man stood in his righteousness and said, in this righteousness before God as a believer, I find my security. God is my righteousness, and he has changed my life, and I'm living as evidence of that, a righteous life. And in that, I'm secure. In that, I will stand. You may move against me. You may move against the church. You may remove our tax-exempt status. You may make it hard to be a believer. You may make it hard to hold strong sexual purity and standards about marriage and about bathrooms and about whatever else happens. You may make it very hard on believers, but we are secure in Christ. We don't need to resist you because there is one who's going to break through the clouds one day. And like I said, he has a sword coming from his mouth and you will not be able to defeat him. You will lose. Rich man, powerful man, or woman, you will lose.
and you will lose tremendously. So now, if you happen to hear this, it's your chance to repent, you know, before the divine judgment falls upon you. This is your chance to heed the warning, the divine warning. And for all of us, this is our reminder, don't, don't be envious of the rich. They have it coming. Pastor Tom has shared a great deal on the dangers facing the rich and powerful and the slippery slope that money creates when we give it the improper place in our lives. What we do with our money matters, and we need to recognize that everything we have is from our Heavenly Father. Let's remember to give Him thanks and be generous with all the blessings He's given to us. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will look at the second coming of Christ and what we can expect to see when he comes. He'll also share some instructions on what we can be doing in the midst of the days leading up to that glorious day. We look forward to that day with great expectation, but we're challenged to remain patient in all our present sufferings, and we're given a wonderful promise for our patience. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting HopeBibleChurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.